This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We turn now to a conversation that is of special import, especially to people, candidly, with a lot of money and sort of how they give their money away instead of buying fancy things. They want to support charities. Uh, Tom Tierney is chairman and co-founder of the Bridgespan Group, uh, also former worldwide managing director of Bain & Company, knows a thing or two about all of these topics. He joins us on the phone from Boston. Tom, great to be with you. Pleasure to be where, be here with you. Thanks for hanging with us uh, as we jetted down to Washington there for uh, part of the press briefing. So Give Smart is your mantra. What should people be thinking about? Because we are on the eve, as it were, of you know the end of the year and, and people really thinking about how and where to give their money. Well, in general, philanthropy is a deeply personal activity. And, of course, we give to causes that we care about. Uh, We also like to give causes that will generate impact, and sometimes that's not obvious. So point one is know what you're giving to. Uh, For the people who are exceptionally wealthy, uh, giving is not just a seasonal event. It's a year-around event. And for those folks, it's more complicated. Well, so let's get into that. So let's talk about it. Because I think one of the things that you find out is you talk about how you know, the accumulation of wealth, particularly among the uber wealthy, uh, that has just been heightened over the last few years. And yet the giving maybe hasn't proportionally, we haven't seen that necessarily. Is that, that kind of what we're seeing? That's true. It's an interesting trend. Let's call it a trend. Uh, the top 2,000 or so households in the United States have a total asset base of around four trillion dollars four trillion dollars and they've earned that uh, and that's been the beneficiary of strong markets and wise investments and many other things however the giving as a percent of assets on that asset base has been relatively low that population gives away about one one and a half percent per year at least that's what it's been in recent years meaning their assets are compounding much, much faster than they're giving. And what's Another the ex- way to say that is in a population whose median age is probably in mid-60s, the baby boom generation, they are not, so to speak, giving while living. And, and why is that? Do you have any sense of why that trend has emerged? Well, yes, although you know, the facts on these things are hard to come by because, as I mentioned, philanthropy is deeply personal. And right. There's an old adage, you've seen one philanthropist, you've seen one philanthropist. But there are some real barriers. Uh, One barrier is just it's emotional, and people are busy, and it's very easy to delay. There's actually no cost to saying, you know, I think I'll give the money away next year or make big gifts next year. And, And so people, if you will, kick that philanthropic can down the street. Um, the second barrier is, in fact, it's hard to do. Um, it's not hard to do if you're giving money to a university or a major institution that's having a capital campaign because they know who you are. Uh, they will find you and make a proposal to you, and you're familiar with them. You went to school there or right. have gone to the hospital. 
Um, but for organizations that don't have those relationships and you're interested in giving to other kinds of social causes, it's actually hard. So there are emotional reasons that make delay pretty uh, easy, and there are practical reasons that make giving at least large amounts of money away rather hard. Well, what's interesting, too, is we just did a story, uh, our Janet Lauren, about uh, academic institutions and universities, Jason, right? That, you know, a Yale or some other folks are saying, here, give us your, funny, uh, your money, and we're happy to manage it, and with the, with the plan is that you've got to give it away, and we'll also get a big chunk of it, the, um, the, the donor-advised donor funds. Fund. So, Tom, just got uh, right. a few seconds here, about 30 seconds here. You've got some ideas, though, for folks who are looking for vehicles to give money away. Yeah, for we think that there is an opportunity to build pathways, if you will, that will allow wealthy people to put money to work more easily in social sector organizations and around social causes. One of those actually mirrors the private equity industry, aggregation funds. And there are funds like Bloom Meridian that have launched that have a couple billion dollars. And people can put money into that fund and they will pick extraordinarily high-impact organizations to invest in. Mm. So there are intermediaries like that that are beginning to provide services, still early days, Mm -hmm. but beginning to provide services to the ultra-wealthy to help them put their money to work in service of society. Tom Tierney is the chairman and co-founder of Bridgepan Group, also former worldwide managing partner of Bain & Company, joining us from Boston, talking about some really important strategies as we think about giving money away. So this is among our most read stories on the Bloomberg today about how ESG investing has kind of lost its way. Uh, And it was definitely my must read this morning on the train this morning, as I mentioned earlier. Rachel Evans is cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Jason and I have a lot of guests. In fact, we were just talking with uh, the folks over at KKR yesterday, Mr. Melman, excuse me, um, about, you know, we are seeing a rise in impact investing and more and more financial firms are getting into it and financial houses more investors want to take part in it. Um, Tell us about your story and what you found out. Yeah, so I I took this from the perspective of exchange-traded funds to see kind of how ESG, environmental social governance concerns, were being moved into the ETF space to allow retail investors but also institutions to invest. And what I found out is that often these funds promise big things. They promise they are ESG, but actually when you dig underneath the name, they don't necessarily hold up to scrutiny. So you find some ESG-labeled funds actually having ExxonMobil, the, the world's largest oil company, as their largest holding. Not necessarily something that you would expect if you're the average investor. And so why does that happen? What, why, what, is to, what are we to make of this as you say, you quote someone calling it greenwashing, which I love. That's a great term. Yeah, so I think this is really kind of coming from the way that these funds are created. So ETFs typically track an index, and to create an index, you need to have a systematic rules-based approach. So the way that this this happens for all funds, including ESG, is that you go, you find some data, you evaluate certain uh, measurable points, and then you create an index and then a fund that tracks that index around those points. And I think what this shows is that, you know, when you look at the data around ESG, it's still pretty nascent, it's still pretty patchy. And often the way that people measure these things are subject to interpretation. So we do get these kind of interesting results as to what actually constitutes ESG. Two things, exactly. The criteria for determining what is an ESG fund, right? It can run the gamut what the rules are. So I am curious that there isn't like an exact mathematical formula that says, okay, this is a, you know, ESG firm. The other thing is, it's, and I love this angle of the story as well, is it's interesting where you say that 
these folks, these financial firms that are offering up these these ETF funds, they're saying that they're more actively managed and so they can charge higher fees. Yeah, so the fee dimension is, is crucial here. I mean, we've seen kind of with the, the evol- evolution of passive that fees have been getting lower and lower. I mean, you can spend... It's the whole idea, supposedly, I thought, of ETFs. Absolutely. You follow an index and right. you don't, really don't have to do anything You don't else. have to pay for that expensive star manager. You can just track the index and pay three basis points. Now, the problem for <coughs> funds uh, and firms with this is that really they still need to generate revenue. They still got shareholders for the most part to account to. So to have a, you know, an ability to charge more, you need to create something more complicated or at least something that seems more bespoke, more nuanced. And we've seen a huge uh, rolling out of kind of smart beta products, thematic products, all do something slightly different. And ESG is kind of within that sort of remit. It's something that looks a bit different and therefore you can charge slightly more for. How much more? About 15 times the average. Wow. So if, if three basis points is your cheapest uh, stock fund, then 15 times that, 45 basis points, is the average price for an ESG fund. There are some that are significantly less than that, and there are some that are more, but that's your midpoint. One of the things you also point out in the story is that you're starting to go a level down with these funds and essentially see that maybe it's a little easier to invest in the G rather than the E and the S, because ultimately you've got to be able to measure what people are doing, right? That's one of the big issues with these funds. Because this is such a kind of nascent area, it's really kind of hard for people to measure things. Sure, you can go out and try and measure emissions, but you won't necessarily get data that's comparable across different firms. What you can do is it's relatively straightforward to go out and count, say, the number of women on a board or the number of minority employees. Right. Uh, So that's something that people can measure. Therefore, people tend to go after the governance piece. And it's something that for institutional investors who do still have that returns dimension, they still need to be making something close to the benchmark it's something that they can get on board with and say hey you know what if something is well governed i can see why that would help my returns and if they're starting to see companies make progress on various whether it's having more diversity in terms of their workforce or cleaning up the environment or less water you know whatever right i mean these are the kind of metrics that might be involved in terms of picking a, a selection or a company to invest in 100 percent. and these are also the kind of metrics that do feed into returns they do help with performance the interesting thing that i found in, in my reporting was really that for retail investors, they're not so fussed about returns. They don't really mind. They're looking to get something that's more or less the benchmark, but actually they're quite happy to give up a few basis points, even a few percentage points, if they feel like they're doing good. Problem is that institutional investors that obviously have the big bucks, right. they don't want to steer too right. clear, far away from those benchmarks. They want something very similar. I will say what I thought was interesting, though, to see more financial firms getting into this. And I thought, well, it's still such a small sliver of assets, but those higher fees can make up for it. Yeah, we're really seeing that kind of, if you think about it being 15 times as much, I mean, you can have 100 million in an ESG fund and be making the same as you would if you had 1 billion in a a cheaper stock fund. Uh, We are seeing assets grow, though. They've tripled uh, since 2015. So it's it's starting to take up some steam. It's a great story. Rachel Evans, cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg. It's a must-read here on the Bloomberg Terminal today on ESG. Carol, I feel like we're having our favorite stories back to back here. Do you love the ESG story, which I did too, but uh, my go-to story today is all about activism. Activists having a busier than ever 2018 as Icon returns to the fray. I read that headline. I'm all in. Yeah, Scott DeVoe is deals reporter here at Bloomberg. He put it all together for us. And what this basically says to me, Scott, is 
you had a busier than ever 2018 because it's your job to follow all can these you, guys. Can you see the bags underneath my eyes? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so activism, it felt like really leveled up in a, in a lot of ways in 2018. Why? What happened? Well, I think primarily what you could point to is the fact that there are a lot of non-traditional players now starting to get into the space. So where it used to be, you know, Bill Ackman, Dan Loeb, Carl Icahn, uh, now it's just about everybody. So a lot of traditionally passive investors have decided that they want to take on companies in a public way. Um, private equity players are getting into the space. And, you know, just these, you know, smaller hedge funds, um, you know, are taking on companies that are probably, you know, a little bit larger than you would expect. Did it pay off their involvement? Yeah, it did. A record 160 seats were given to activists this year. Um, board seats. Board yeah. seats. Wow. Um, so not obviously all through proxy battles, so a lot of settlements. Um, but, you know, if you put that in context, um, that's compared to 100 last year and 145 at the previous peak in 2016. So wow. it's, it's, a quite a, it's quite a hike. Well, and you mentioned proxy fights, and I'm glad you did, because that's been the traditional playbook, right? Mm. You know, it's this rather protracted process, and you've got to go through all the filings and, and whatnot. But even some of the traditional players you write uh, have kind of changed the playbook a little bit. They're using social media. They're using other forms of media, being much more aggressive and candidly more transparent, it feels like, upfront about what they want. Yeah, I think um, traditionally what you would find is, you know, one day they just pop up with a letter, you know, say that they own 10% of a stock or 5% of a stock. And, you know, I've got all these demands that I want. And then it's game on. And it's game on. And there's a cadence to a proxy fight that we were getting used to. But now we're getting these kind of, I would say, somewhat unusual situations. Um, I'm thinking Nestle, for instance, with the third point. You know, it was... It was well over a year, I guess a year and a half ago, that uh, they disclosed their position in Nestle and you know said that what they wanted to see at that company. They put out another letter in July, a year later, saying you know still haven't seen exactly what I'm looking for. You know this is what I'd like to see. So we're seeing them what they are being is much more communicative in in what they want to see, and they're avoiding those kind of costly proxy fights that were. Um, we're so used to seeing. Well, and I find what's interesting about this too, Scott, is that when we think about the market environment, um, by having activists front and center and more actively involved, I feel like when there's something wrong with the company, um, they don't they don't wait, right? If they don't like something, it's out in the marketplace, yeah, and you get right. you kind of deal with situations. I feel like more quickly rather than letting them fester, perhaps for six months or a year or what have you. Yeah, I mean, if you know that. Dan Loeb's in your stock or, you know, Paul Singer's in your stock. I mean, there's going to be a natural sense of urgency because you know things can go bad um, and quickly. And so one of the most fascinating things to me, and and you top your story with this, is this idea of like Carl Icahn. This guy's been doing this for quite some time. He had an amazing 2018 or or amazingly vocal 2018 as well, including a, a little turn into the political sphere as well. Yeah, well, obviously he came back with a fury after you know taking a year off uh, advising uh, President Trump, um, and you know it was in December where he first took his first position, which was in Sandridge Energy, a small right. little energy company. And he broke up a deal there with Bonanza Creek, um, and then you know it just started to spiral. It was like every it seemed like every big deal that came through, Michael Dell's pushed to go private or public again. 
um, you know, he got in the middle of Xerox Fuji, right. and even less successfully uh, on the Cigna Express script uh, uh, transaction. You know, and had a pretty good run. I mean, he got better prices at Dell. He got better prices at AmTrust and, you know, broke up the deal at Xerox Fuji. You know, when we started, I said to you, you know, has it paid off kind of thing. But I do wonder, has it made for better companies? Like, are those share prices doing better than the overall market? I mean, it's been a tough market environment this year. Maybe it's not a fair fair time yeah, to be I mean, doing that. But I wonder if by pushing and being so out there front and center that it's made for better companies, better run companies, I, and better stock prices. I, I think, you know... The, the go-to that most people point to is the, the you know the study the works that have been done out of Harvard um, that measures the total returns over the three five and ten year period um, and and I think generally uh, companies that have been targeted by an activist um, uh, perform better and this isn't the kind of thing that you're going to see you know overnight unless right. it's you know somebody pushing for a sale and they get a good price um, th- and a lot of these cases and we're seeing it obviously at GE um, right. you know with Tryon you know taking a position there these things can take time and sometimes you know you, you got to be careful what you wish for because you might just end up with it right so um, I think Generally, though, I think you would find um, that that these companies tend to do better, and there's a sense of urgency put on it. What do you see in 2019? Does it continue? And I, I know in your story you also point out that we start to look more for this kind of activity happening, activists being active Europe, in Europe. Europe, <laughs> Europe, Europe. But there's a lot big, for them to play with, the big, right? The big trends now, I mean, you've seen this in particular with Elliott um, taking stakes, you know, in the last you know few months in Bayer. Um, you know, they launched a they had a successful proxy fight at Telecom Italia, right. you know, they're in Vodafone, um, and the list goes on. And and I think generally what it is is that, that there's a lot more low-hanging fruit in Europe than there is in the U.S. because there's been less activism there. Um, and there's a lot of these conglomerate structures that activists love to get in there and, you know, do their financial engineering. And, and um, so we're seeing a lot of that. One thing I, I'd also like to point out um, – is that uh, you know last year there weren't any mega caps right. companies that were targeted? You know these are like the mm. big ones, like hundred billion dollar companies, and there seems to be a sense that there's going to be an uptick in that um, in the coming year. So Europe and mega cap companies. So that's what I'll be looking for and right. trying to. Break. I mean, it's also interesting too. You mentioned private equity at the top of the conversation, and when they go after those mega cap companies, often it's private equity that ends up benefiting because. They're forced to die. You know, these big companies are, sure. are forced so to divest. Pieces, right? And a lot of times the, the private equity guys are the only ones who have the stomach for it, uh, the stomach to, to buy up uh, what's left. Scott DeVoe, uh, deals reporter, activist maven, uh, covering it all for us here at Bloomberg, joining us in New York. Uh, we know you've you know, you got a lot of deals to chase down now, Scott. <laughs> no rest for the weary. Thanks for joining us. Get your passport ready. Thanks for too. having me. Yeah, yeah it <laughs> sounds like to he's going to be on the road. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Tell you what is crucial is hearing from the world's most important and influential investors in a market like this. And Eric Shasker did just that. He is with us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, a man about town, an editor at large, talking to the movers and the shakers. Eric, Stan Druckenmiller. Heard of him. What did he have to say? Well, for those who haven't heard of Stan Druckenmiller, let me give you a quick bio. He was known as the greatest hedge fund manager of his generation. From 1981 through 2010, when he closed his fund, he generated annual returns of 30% 
on average, without a single down year. He worked with George Soros, broke the Bank of England in 1992. The list of his achievements goes on. But suffice it to say that when Stan Druckenmiller talks markets, people tend to listen. Oh, I should add, of course, that he called the last four recessions. Um, I sat down with Stan. We talked for 60 minutes, a good deal about Fed policy. But as you might imagine, we spent a lot of time talking about where markets are headed and volatility and the unpredictability of the moves and how much worse things might get. Here's his answer to that question. I think the air can be let out of this balloon without causing another financial crisis. I think it's possible. Um, but it's hard to believe um, at least markets will not have struggling returns the next three to five years. Possible, but how difficult? Oh, very difficult, which is why I didn't like the so-called insurance policy of QE3 to get escape philosophy in the first place. So possible, difficult, and with poor returns. How poor? Oh, I, I could see the S&P returning between 0 and 5% annually in the next five years. Um, but, Eric, the, the, one of the strengths of my investment returns over time was being open-minded. And, you know, I'm just throwing out answers to something that, uh, as my wife and others will tell you, you know, he believes something on Monday and two weeks later <laughs> uh, he changes his mind. But Well, I, are we in a bear market now? Well, of course we are. Um, we've been in a global bear market for about a year now. And for those, by the way, who say there's no correlation between the economy and the stock market, I'll just point out that the DAX and the China market peaked in January, and I don't know whether anybody's seen their economic data lately, but I'm not even talking about the inside their stock markets. I don't think it's clear-cut to me, which a lot of people say, that this is a correction in a secular bull market. Because we had free money for eight or nine years, because we had a debt buildup, because we, I'm sure we had malinvestment, this could take three to five years either sideways or a big down with something else. But, yeah, I think, I think the highest probability is, is we struggle going forward. And the bottom may be a ways away still. Maybe, or it could be right here, and we're just talking about sideways for quite a while. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I will say this in terms of the current market. Um, We've done a lot of de-risking. I went short the market in, in July because I saw QT coming and I lost my butt um, in July and August uh, because I was three months early. You can't be, you can't think ahead in this market. Uh, he lost his, I won't repeat the phrase, but Stan Druckenmiller, even Stan Druckenmiller has clearly had a very difficult time in this market. And he says it's not just you know about the fact that stocks are going down it's that some stocks are going down and then they rebound very quickly and he can't tell whether some of the strange trading patterns have to do with the participation of algorithmic and quantitative traders what he does say is that he can't divine the same signals from the market 
that he used to uh, and that he used to predict recessions and other adverse events. And as a result, the kinds of returns that he generates for himself uh, are way lower than they used to be when he had clients. So in the little bit of time we have left, Eric, tell us what he said about hedge funds, because as an industry, they're in a bit of crisis themselves. He's been predicting for several years that the hedge fund industry had to shrink, both in terms of the amount of money under management and the number of funds. And of course, that has been happening. What he said is that in the future, there may be 10 to 20 great fundamental discretionary hedge fund managers, 10 to 20, and that's it. And everybody else had better cut your fees drastically because you really won't have a reason to survive. Which is amazing when we that have what? That is amazing. But, well, and amazing in what we have a record year, right, of hedge fund assets again. We have a record hedge fund. Yes, that's true. But there are more hedge funds closing right. than there are opening. And some very notable managers have as they say back where I come from, hung up the skates. Check out the whole interview. It's at Bloomberg.com. It's a must watch, especially as we're all trying to make sense of this market. It does not make me feel better that Stan Druckenmiller is also confused about this market. Eric Schatzker, amazing interview as always. Thank you so much uh, for joining us and looking forward to the next installment of Eric Talks to Really Important Investors. You'll hear it here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. JJ Kinahan is in the house. Well, kind of from Chicago. He's our chief market strategist at TD Ameritrade. <laughs> exactly. We are everywhere. One point three trillion in assets under management. And as I said, JJ with us from uh, Chicago. JJ, oh, nice okay. to have you here with Jason and myself. Watching the market trade, we bounced off our lows and we're now positive again, just barely up about eleven on the S and P. The Dow's up now one hundred eighty one points, one hundred eighty two points. Nasdaq up about fifty eight points. I got to go back to something we just heard from our own Eric Schatzker, who had a conversation with Stan Druckenmiller, the billionaire, legendary hedge fund investors who called a lot of big macro stories, uh, particularly the four past recessions. He says he's no longer in the hedge fund business because the algorithmic and quantitative trading have taken over the markets. When I look at trading like today, I do feel like we hit a level and the formulas, the mathematical and uh, you know, machine formulas kick in and that's what controls the trade. How do you see it? You guys have a lot of money under management. I mean, there's a lot of formulas at work, correct? Well, there are a lot of formulas at work. There's no question about that. But I think that the the upside, if you will, of the uh, formulas is that it's one of the things that keeps relationships in line and keeps uh, markets tight. So, you know, when you go into trade, you know, particularly for a retail trade or when they go into trade Apple and they can get filled, you know, pennies in between the markets, et cetera, that is the upside of these. And uh, I think one other thing that's kicking in this week that may be over, there's so much news right now, 
that it may be overlooked, and that is it's a quadruple witching week. Yeah. So the futures and the options and options on the futures are, are all getting their final value for December on Friday. So program trading during this week is usually heavier than there are four times a year it's very heavy, December being one of them. Right. So it's not necessarily surprising to me to see that kicking in today perhaps more than you would normally You see. talk about things being overlooked. What about, though, investors overlooking what we keep hearing from our team, that the earnings environment, while it may be slowing down and not as upbeat as it's been, it's still growing. The economy is still expected to grow in 2019. Why are investors kind of pushing all of that aside? Well, I think they're pushing it aside for the primary reason, I think, you know, no matter, you, you, we talk about rates, we talk about all this stuff, but the primary story is still what's going on with tariffs and the unknown. And what I mean by that is you even look at CEOs are waiting to invest, being very conservative in their estimates. Why? There's a game being played that nobody knows what the rules are going to be. Is it going to be zero tariffs? Is it going to be 25% tariffs? At the end of the day, I won't say no one cares because, of course, we all care. We want to know. Once you know, you can win a game. When you don't know what the rules are, it's impossible to win the game. We're in this gray area right now. And until we know what those rules are, I think this volatility is going to uh, continue. JJ, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons we love talking to you is your experience, but also your uh, tendency to uh, turn a phrase and your notion <laughs> that uh, this market is like a slasher movie with bleeding in every corner. I love that. Uh, it's quite evocative, but you're right. There's really uh, no place to hide, not just across sectors, but mm -hmm. in asset classes as well. Um, it, that's exactly true. So, you know, uh, it, what's been very interesting to me in this down move is normally you'll see people say, okay, stocks are getting killed. I'm going to go to bonds. Well, bonds haven't, you know, they've done well today, obviously had a great day. But I, I think people's sense of safety there has been a little bit uh, overturned, if you will. And so I, I, the, the question for many people, this sell-off, in my opinion, has not been because people are, I have to sell everything. This has been the lack of buyers. And there is a difference in that because it's been a very orderly sell-off. And I think it's just a matter of people saying, I don't want to take any more risks going into the end of the year. I'm going to get rid of the holdings I have that may have either made money or I, I've kind of given up on. And what I have, I'm comfortable with, but I don't see a great reason to add to risk with the, you know, with the Fed meeting going on and, again, to the tariff situation heading into the end of this year and the beginning of next year. So it also means that, well, that those investors don't feel like we are maybe near a bottom when it comes to the downward move, right? Otherwise, if they thought – because, I mean, stocks are cheaper than they were a month ago. So, you know, they don't feel upbeat enough to put some money to work. Um, because they think, okay, we've hit a, hit a low here potentially. That could be going well, on as well. It could be, Carol, but I think they don't feel that way, Be going back to my analogy about the rules, because they don't know what the rules will be. If they knew that, okay, they were going to be 25%, you could say, okay, well, here's what I think it means for this, whatever their particular stock or stocks may be. When you don't, uh, you know, having a 25% tariff or maybe a 0% tariff is going to be a lot different, and they don't want to take the risk of what's going to be that bogey in between right now, again, because it's just too wide a gap and too big an unknown. So, J.J., you started your career, if I've got this right, like in the pits, the SIBO. You've seen it all from literally the, the ground level. Uh, what does this market feel like to you? I feel like we're, we're all sort of looking around for an analog here. What do you make of it? 
Well, first of all, you're calling out how old I am, which is very. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, honestly, uh, I will say that this, you know, one of the questions you asked earlier about it, where are people turning, I, I don't really remember a time in the last, you know, 10 years where there were so few um, places where you're like, I feel like I'm very safe in yeah. this asset. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest difference of what I'm seeing right now. And everybody's trying to figure out what those assets will be that are safe. You know, we saw a few of the consumer staple stocks in the last few down moves like Procter Gamble, Coca-Cola, Pepsi perform well. well now well, they're just doing okay, all I can so think we'll about, see. All I can think about is our bite of the day yesterday about the amount of the market cap of the overall market and how much it's come down. Uh, I think it's this year. It's just that number just blew trillion, my mind. Right? Yeah. yeah. Pretty crazy. Go. J.J. Kinahan, Chief Market Strategist for TD Ameritrade, joining us on the phone from Chicago. Always good to catch up with you. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.